When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Greg Lavalley, Director of Technology at Slate. You might remember me from a few episodes of working in the fall of 2019, where I talked to people who write code. We have a little time between seasons of working, and we had an unaired episode from those sessions that we really wanted to share. In the interview, Laura Buford talks about her experiences as a back-end engineer at the Federal Election Commission. I love learning about the work the government is doing using some of the same tools as big tech startups, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Laura Buford, and I'm a back-end engineer for the Federal Election Commission. Some of our listeners who don't know anything about code might not know what back-end engineer means. Do you think you could expand on that a little bit? Sure. So I work on the code that goes into FEC.gov. We have a open source campaign finance data API and front end website. And when I say API, it means there's a interface that uh, anyone can come and get our data directly. And so when people talk about back end code, it usually means the underlying engine that produces the output versus the front-end side, which might make it more user-friendly or design an interface that uh, looks good to the eye. I work on the numbers and the performance and make sure that the the front-end site has the information that it needs and that it's accurate. So who who might use that code that you write? So our front-end site also uses the API. So anyone who comes to fec.gov to explore who's running for office, um, how much money they've raised, how they're spending that money, they're actually using the API under the hood. And then any developers or data scientist students or anyone who's interested in getting directly to the data can go to our API site, api.open.fec.gov. And uh, you don't have to write any code to use the API. We have an interface that allows you to try out some different queries. But I've seen folks, um, students and hobbyists, I, I met a woman who built a Twitter bot that tweets every time someone registers to run for president. Hmm. Uh, those are the types of folks who might want to use the API directly instead of going through our front-end site. One thing that I'm, I'm not sure that people who don't write code understand about code is how collaborative writing code can be. You, you said that the front-end uses your code, which means that other coders write code on top of your code or with your code. How does how does that work? Absolutely. So, yes, we have a, a front-end team who works on, it's like a, a different site uh, so FEC.gov is what we consider our front-end site. They write the code that ingests the data. Um, we have a designer and a front-end team that builds visualizations to see not just a you know, raw output of, of who's running for office, but maybe put them in order and put a bar chart with it and see what party has raised the most in a given election, um, making that data easier to understand and tell a story with the data. And then uh, the code that you write, does anyone else see that code or is it just produce some data and then people get the data? Sure. Um, Our site is open source. And so what that means is that all of our code is public, which is a pretty cool thing to work in government. Uh, We work in the open. So uh, if you go to fec.gov in the footer, you can see links to how to get to 
uh, GitHub is where we store our code. So if you wanted to see the code that goes into the API that I primarily focus on the API or the code that goes into the front end site, all of that code is publicly available on GitHub. And um, there are some myths around open source. Not everyone can go in and change our code. People can propose changes and we can then decide to accept them or not. But all of our code is publicly available on GitHub. What led you into coding? I've had a kind of, uh, this is my third shot at being a person who writes code. I started off as a computer science major in college, but then for various reasons, didn't feel like that was the direction I wanted to go. Writing code is really hard, especially if you don't have like a really strong math background. And so I was also a D1 athlete at the time. And one of my strongest memories is I was up late trying to debug my code and my alarm went off to go to practice. And I was like, well, I guess I'm going to practice now. So I thought I didn't want to write code for a long time. I was a political science and history major and was really involved in American politics and American history. And my first job out of college Someone suggested I go look at a local tech company that works here in D.C. They basically built campaign finance software for filers to disclose their information to the FEC, kind of like a TurboTax for uh, your campaign finance reporting information. And there I really, I worked in client services doing some tech support, and I really fell in love with this kind of all the rules and the the laws and regulations that were in place to try to add transparency and accountability for campaigns. And I worked in tech support there for probably three or four years before they asked me to move onto the development team and write software because I got to the point where if a caller reported a bug in the software, I would send the developers the line of code where the bug was occurring. And they were like, why don't you just come on over here and help us write the code? And I did that for about a year and a half. And then for a number of reasons, didn't feel like it was the right fit. Um, I think in hindsight, I wasn't feeling as challenged, but I didn't recognize that. This was before I found like the women in tech community. I was just feeling a little bit like not sure how I could grow my skills and and feeling like I was a little bit stuck. So I actually went to go work at the FEC in, in a less technical role. I, I was in more of, again, more of a client services tech support type role at the FEC. It was a really great job where I got to help campaigns comply with the law and disclose their information and help them respond when the FEC said, hey, what's going on here? Please explain the situation, help them respond appropriately. And I also did tech support there for the FEC's free electronic filing software which is very much something that we're working on trying to modernize. At the time, it was, I would say it's free government-provided software and everything that implies. So, so there's some usability challenges there, some, some technical limitations there. So um, after about five years of doing that, that role, I was looking for a challenge, and I met the folks at the FEC that work on the website project, and I was just really excited by it. Um, the FEC had partnered with 18F to build a really modern open-source site, and having been in technical roles in the past, I always wanted to look at the code. Even if I wasn't writing the code myself, I always found it very interesting. So I started researching this project and got really excited about it and decided I was going to teach myself Python <laughs> and apply to work on the website project team. And I, I managed to talk my way onto the team and really quickly was, was super lucky to work with folks at ETNF were still on the project. And I had amazing mentors there. And they really got me up to speed on, on what I needed to know. And the, the team environment and the work challenge and the way we work out in the open and in a agile way, and I can talk about what that means to us, um, it was just a really exciting project to be a part of. 
Uh, you mentioned a couple things that are, I'm, I'm wondering if, if people will know what they are. Uh, one is just Python, which to some people is a snake you see at the zoo, um, and to other people is a programming language. And I guess you also mentioned teaching yourself, which I think is something that might not be uh, something that immediately comes to mind for people when you think about a language. Like I wouldn't go out and teach myself Swedish. I would use Duolingo or I would go to take a class. So do you think you could expand a little on what does it mean to like teach yourself a language that is called Python? Uh, sure. So Python is a programming language that's very beginner friendly in that it reads a lot like the words you would use to describe what you want to do anyway. So there's, a, in my mind, a pretty low barrier of entry uh, to getting started with Python. When I say teach myself, I have to make sure I give credit where it's due. I found, I, I learned better in person. So I found an amazing nonprofit here in DC called Hear Me Code that taught free Python programming classes for women. And it uh, it was the quality of instruction there was just really fantastic and it really helped me get excited about the possibility of continuing my learning uh, with Python and the possibility of trying to get this job at the agency. There are a lot of free resources available if you're interested in learning code. If you just kind of Google like free Python courses, um, some things that might come up might be Code Academy. I found their classes to be very beginner friendly. They kind of walk you through with interesting examples. And for me, learning the basics was I had the foundation of having had some computer science classes in college and then having worked as a developer for a year and a half in the past. But um, I was pretty rusty, so it was really helpful to, to basically start from scratch and try to learn the basics. When you're learning through some of these platforms, they have you know hands-on exercises where you can practice doing the thing, and they give you over time they'll give you you know less and less handholding, and you mm -hmm. start helping you develop those critical thinking skills. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com working. Rules and restrictions may apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. 
From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. That's bluehost.com wondersuite. What other jobs did you have before coding? And then like, I guess maybe if you can compare sort of like what, how coding is different from other occupations you've had. Yeah. So, I mean, besides like summer jobs and internships, my first job out of college was at the political technology company where I worked. Um, we did, I did tech support there. Um, so people would call in and, you know, they would have question, basic questions about how to use the software. They would report, you know, any challenges they were having with, with usability or, or bugginess. And then some of my favorite things about that job were, was I would do some like custom built reports for folks. Like if they had wanted to analyze their data in a way that wasn't already being done, I could build like a custom analysis of their data for them. Phone support is a hard job. It's exhausting. The phone's always ringing. You always have to, you know, put your smile on your face, even though people can't see your smile. So I would say that was a pretty hard job to have as my first job, but I learned so much. And, you know, we would find ourselves supporting small products that weren't as highly used, and we didn't really know how to use it either. So someone would call in with a question, and I would always say, so walk me through the steps you've taken so far. You know, and that way I could follow along with how far they'd gotten and then be like, oh, this this button here looks promising. Like, let's try this button here. So I learned so much in that job, but it was it was probably time for a change. I think burnout in tech support type roles is, is pretty high. Nothing quite like a 24-hour outage where you have to you know answer phone calls the whole time apologizing for like, I'm so sorry, we're going to get the system back up as soon as we can. So I that was my first job out of college before they had asked me to move on to the engineering team. And then after that job wasn't quite the right fit, I thought... I didn't want to be a developer anymore. So I was looking around like, <laughs> am I going to be a firefighter? Like, am I going to be a teacher? I wasn't, I was really having a career crisis, but I'd always really enjoyed uh, campaign finance as a subject. So the FEC has these conferences where you can learn about campaign finance rules and regulations and reporting. And they used to have FEC Jeopardy. And I used to get like so excited about like, oh, you know, under what circumstances can you can you make an in-kind contribution or, you know, that, which is gifts of goods and services, you know, or or under, how, what's the time frame for a candidate paying down their, their loan before it turns automatically into a contribution? Like, these are the types of rules that I got really nerdy about. So I was like, well, maybe I'll go work for the FEC. So uh, at the FEC, I was, again, in more of a client services, technical support type role. And it can be very fulfilling when you can help someone figure out a problem. And I had, um, I think, over 350 political committees assigned to me directly who, when they called for help, they called me. So I, I could build relationships with those callers. And towards the end of my time there, I was reviewing presidential reports. And if there were excessive or impermissible contributions that were reported. I would send a, we called them letters, but they went out as emails. We, we would send correspondence on the public record saying, 
hey, please refund these contributions within 60 days or, or whatever the, the rules were there. And so sometimes some local news agencies would say, oh, FEC employee Laura Buford is asking this presidential candidate to please refund their excessive contributions. So it was pretty neat. But over time, again, I think the answering phones and feeling like I kind of had the, the hang of things and wasn't really sure how I could grow led me to where I wanted to explore a challenging job. And in my job on the website team, I'm never bored. We have lots of things to do. If you check out our GitHub repository of all our open issues, I think there are like 200 open issues. <laughs> like, And then we're always coming up with new ways of making things better um, and have really, really supportive leadership where if we have an idea about like, oh, you know, we've been really reactive in this way. What if we were proactive and tried to catch this sooner by, you know, analyzing the data this way and, and f alerting us if it was, you know, not matching up properly and leadership will be like, go for it. That sounds like a great plan. So it's a very creative job for me. So that's, so far, it's been a really good fit. And do you feel like the tech support thing has prepared you for certain aspects of the coding job too? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think being in tech support made me a better developer. I mean, first of all, I'm fundamentally offended by bugs because I know there's someone out there on the other end of a phone saying, I'm so sorry, we'll fix that as soon as we can. And they hang up the phone and they log the phone call for the records and then they there's not a whole lot they can do to actually get that thing fixed. So I know that's a really difficult job to be the person on the phone who's apologizing for the bug. And so one of my specialties on my team is is fixing bugs. I think my coworker called me the bug exterminator, which is like <laughs> maybe the nicest thing anyone's ever said about me. Um, lots of developers enjoy building new things, which is also very exciting, but I love the satisfaction of fixing something that's broken. So being in tech support definitely helps me empathize with the users and recognize when something's not friendly. And then also just those creative problem-solving skills um, have really made it easier for me to figure out like all the different moving parts and how to fix problems. And maybe if you can't fix it the perfect way, coming up with a way of getting it usable, having a, a workaround option, maybe you can get that out the door faster while you work on the perfect solution. Um, just make sure you're reducing the pain for the users as much as possible. What is your day like? What time do you get to work? What do you do when you get there? And when do you, when do you leave? I usually get in around 8.30, 9 o'clock. We're pretty flexible, even though government doesn't always have a reputation for being flexible. I'm lucky um, in some agencies you can have a pretty flexible work day. When I say we work on an agile team, that means different things to different people. But for us, it means instead of planning out the entire project from the very beginning and waiting till the very end to release a product and hope that people like it, we try to shorten the feedback loop between when we're working on, say, a new feature or um, making changes. We get it out to the public to look and give us feedback on as, as quickly as possible so that we don't try to imagine every amount of feedback they might have ahead of time. We try to let them tell us what, what's working well, what's not. And we have a really amazing um, user experience designer on our team that will go out and do uh, interviews with users to see if if they're able to get what they need with the new features and existing features. Um, so when I get to work, I usually have tickets that are assigned to me. When I say we work in the open, all of our active issues are in our public GitHub repository. So you can see we call them sprints where there's a a two-week increment where we'll try to take on a chunk of work. We all sit together in a planning meeting. We say, okay, who wants to work on this? Who wants to work on that? And when I get a ticket, it's not telling me exactly how to fix something. It tells me what the problem is and what the end goal is. Um, and then it's up to me to try to figure out how to address it. So I usually look at the issues that are assigned to me as my kind of guideline of what I want to be focusing on. 
and start from there. Uh, if I'm lucky and I have a whole day that goes kind of according to my plan, because things do come up kind of last minute where I have to rearrange my schedule. Um, if I have a whole day that's kind of, it goes the way I expect from start to finish, <laughs> which sounds a little silly, silly to say out loud because that doesn't happen too often, but I will take a look at my ticket and depending on what status I'm in with it, I'll go ahead and try to work on it. So some of the things that I'm really interested, I really enjoy working on bugs. So when we say a software bug, it means something that's not working as expected. Uh, to me, it's kind of like I'm solving a mystery. So I'll start by just trying to reproduce it on my local machine. So what that means is I take all the code and it's I'm running it on my own computer instead of looking at it on a public site. And that means I have a little more control over how, to, how the different elements are interacting together. So I'll go ahead and run the code on my on my own computer and if I can reproduce the issue then I know that's my starting point once I can actually say okay yes I can see this is still not working as expected then I can start to try to tinker and see where the problem arises I talked earlier about how the API feeds into the front end site Sometimes we have to figure out, is this a front-end display issue or is it an API not providing the front-end with the proper information? So kind of figuring out what layer the, the problem arises. I usually start at the top and work my way down. So if it looks like the front-end site is getting what it needs from the API, just not spitting it out properly or displaying it improperly, then I know that's where I need to focus my efforts. But if sometimes often the API isn't giving the front end the correct information, so then I need to dig down, is this a data problem? Where's the logic not providing the correct information? Do you remember the, the first piece of code that you wrote that you liked? I do, yeah. Um, it touched on a lot of fundamentals for me. The first piece of code I wrote at the FEC, we have these election profile pages where you can see, okay, I want to see everyone who's running for Senate. If you wanted to look at a given election, who's running in that office? Um, and it's pretty intuitive. You kind of come, you, you look up your election. It shows you who's running, how much they've raised. Um, but we can get a little funny with Senate elections usually are, are every six years and they're staggered. So not every state has a Senate election in a given year, except sometimes there are special elections where you know, there wasn't a scheduled election for that time frame, but someone resigned or was appointed to a cabinet level position or something like that. So there's an additional election held. And so our normal logic won't, uh, we'll have to like figure out how to add that election year to our list of available options. It kind of breaks the pattern. So my first piece of work they did on the project was to make that data-driven and kind of have the front end go check in what years are there Senate specials and let's add those years to the list of available elections so that people can see who's running in this, you know, Alabama Senate special, for example. Have you ever introduced a bug into production and then had to fix it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, one of my great mentors at 18F always said, like, the more important work you're doing, the more likely you are to introduce bugs into production. So um, over time, as I started responding to a lot of the existing bugs and, and kind of getting my hands into different parts of the code base, I absolutely, you know, you handle nine out of 10 scenarios and that, that one edge case, as we'll call them, comes and bites you hard. So what we do is I mean, we're, we're a team effort. So one of the, my favorite things about Working in the open is that we'll share in, we use Slack as our internal messaging s system, and we'll say, hey, I found this bug. We go to our product managers and we say, how urgent is this? Is this hotfix worthy? And the, the you know, we'll kind of look at the scope and the impact of the bug. Like recently, <laughs> this is just happening a couple of days ago, and you can see it all on GitHub. 
um, we found a, a bug that we were trying to address and we wanted to fix it on short notice. And so I thought I had found a change and I was able to push the changes up to a development sandbox environment so anyone could kick the tires on it. And I said, you know, hey, we're trying to get it out quickly. And I said, hey, team, you know, can we all get together and kick the tires on this change? You know, and everyone logged in. Everyone, It's public site. So everyone went to the, the development environment site and was, was poking around and making sure that it looked like it was addressing all the, the issues. And so once the code was ready, we always have another team member go ahead and deploy the code. And we always have a review process where if I want to make a change, I'll, I'll need a team member to go ahead and approve the change before we, we push it live. So I've made my own mistakes for sure, but we're we're really good at as a team as having like a blameless culture and just kind of look a bug was identified. Let's <laughs> all swarm on it and, and get it addressed without spending time on coulda shoulda woulda sort of thinking. I mean, uh, like the software that you use to review other people's code and keep track of it allows you to know exactly who changed what line whenever you want. But even our team at Slate has always said that the only person you can get blame is yourself because it almost always is you when, yes. when you go to look at who did who did this? Like, oh, it's probably me. I, I'm curious a little bit more about just sort of like your work life in general and kind of, I guess we talked a little bit about a team. You have a team that reviews your code. Um, how big is the team that you work on and how many teams are there that are operating and how do you all work with each other? I have an awesome team. Um, we are all federal employees. It's what we call a cross-functional team. So we have people from not just IT, but from other uh, offices within the FEC working together. We have eight developers working on the website. And I always say website doesn't quite encompass the, the work we do. We build like a giant data application. And so there's a lot of moving parts that go into keeping that fast and uh, available and accurate. And we have a user experience designer. She is you know, closely coupled with the developers. She's the one who makes sure that our features that we're designing are user-friendly and they can help our users accomplish their goals. And then we've got a content team from a couple different offices that works on building out the content on our site and two product managers that kind of help us guide our priorities and stay on track with, for our goals. How many meetings do you have in like a given week? We used to have more. So um, when people talk about like agile software development, sometimes they focus a lot on the rituals around that. One you may have heard of before is stand-up, where people get together once a day and say, you know, here's what I did yesterday. Here's what I'm working on today. Here are any blockers that I have. Um, here are any things that are preventing me from being able to move forward. Um, so we do have a half-hour stand-up every day. And we used to have more meetings than we realized people on our team felt like we had too many meetings. So now we have our like our sprint planning meetings. So those are our two-week increments of work. I think those are our only scheduled meetings. So I'd say I'm pretty lucky I get to spend a lot of time actually working. <laughs> <laughs> but meetings are work, aren't they? They are work, and sometimes they're very valuable. Um, we can see sometimes we'll do an innovation sprint where we focus on, you know, everyone takes a, a topic they, they think they want to learn more on or, or, or improve or processes or our code. And we don't tend to do stand-ups every day during our innovation sprint. And you can see that um, we don't always proactively communicate with each other and things can get a little bit out of sync, even missing, you know, every other stand-up. So um, meetings can absolutely be valuable, but I think you have to ask yourself, I think the burden of proof should be on having the meeting, not canceling the meeting, if that makes sense. Like, 
what are we trying to accomplish here? And, and could it just be an, is, is it just an announcement? That could probably just be sent over Slack. And then if people have follow-up questions, maybe that's when you can decide whether you need to have a meeting to discuss something. What about um, remote work? Does anybody work from home or does everybody come to the office every day? So our agency has an official policy of two scheduled telework days per week, which I think is um, pretty good for government. Uh, we worked closely with 18F. They're now rolled off the project, but 18F is very remote friendly. So they helped us set the culture of having video call meetings kind of by default. So it makes it much more flexible for folks who might have an unexpected reason they need to telework. So we also have an episodic telework policy where I think with manager approval, you can have additional telework days if for whatever reason it, it works better for you to work from home. So I'd say it's a very remote friendly team, but my agency right now doesn't let anyone go full-time telework unless there are medical circumstances. Some people in programming talk about, uh, I guess in every discipline, people talk about the concept of flow and sort of being concentrated in your work. Um, is that something that you're familiar with? Do people actually use that word at work? Have you felt what that might mean? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's one of my favorite things about being a developer is when you're just kind of in the zone and you feel like sometimes I feel like I have all these um, moving pieces up in the air and I'm trying to you know, rearrange them. And if I get interrupted, all the pieces fall back down to the ground and I have to start again. So for me, yeah, a flow is absolutely one of the things I love about my job is when you just feel like you're totally in the zone and you're making all these connections and, and moving towards a solution. For that reason, uh, I think Slack can be, uh, or email or whatever um, chat messaging systems that folks use can be a big barrier to flow. So I'm very particular about turning off all my notifications unless someone specifically tags me in something. So I don't get like all the dings and all the pop-ups and because I there's no way I could achieve flow if I had those constant interruptions. So um, I think setting boundaries where I check my email on my schedule, not when I get a pop-up that there's a new email has been really helpful. And I've found that I'm still able to be quite responsive if I wait until when I'm in a good stopping point to, to check up on messages. I feel like those little red dots are the flow killer. <laughs> they are. They're really hard to resist. So I turn all of them off. Yeah, same. What is the thing that you wish that you could program that you cannot program? Oh, I've always said I would like a robot to make me a sandwich. Because <laughs> I think sandwiches made by other people always taste better. Than the ones you make yourself. The ones you make yourself. Oh, that's a really good one. What is an important thing that computers do poorly, in your opinion? I think computers are very literal. So they do what you ask them to do. And so... If you give instructions, say you're like, oh, yes, we do A, B, D, E, and F, and C is implied, computers aren't going to like, you know, just think, oh, and she meant C in there too. They're going to just skip that step. So I think the software is only as good as the way it's written. And um, I think if you're looking for like nuance or judgment, teaching a computer to have good judgment, I think is very difficult to do. I'm not as involved in the like machine learning space or artificial intelligence space, but I have read stories of algorithms being biased in ways that the people who are creating the algorithms didn't anticipate. Um, so I think that's something that computers don't do well is kind of have a conscience and, and have good judgment. What about uh, when you watch movies and there is code in those movies, what is your reaction to code in movies? Well, I think some of the most exciting stories are around hackers. 
Um, I'm just starting to learn more about like what that means and and how to write secure code. So anytime I see any depiction of of hackers or software developers, I get really excited. I used to be that way when I was a rower. So anytime I saw rowing, I'd literally say rowing. <laughs> um, so if I see, I think there was a, a episode of Russian Doll where the main character is like doing a code review and like I could just watch hours of that sort of interaction but I'm guessing maybe that wouldn't be as entertaining to the to the general uh, population although there could be an untapped market there um, so I think it's cool I think a lot of times there's um, some funny stuff that happens that doesn't like couldn't really exist and some some suspension of disbelief but I enjoy just um watching the stories and learning about the different ways people can use technology, I would consider myself in a lot of ways still pretty new. So I'm not at the point where I'm going to like snark on someone's, you know, Linux commands (laughs) (laughs) that they're using. What do people not understand about coding that you would love to explain to them? There are lots of different ways to be involved in writing software. And it's okay if you don't have a computer science major. There are so many different ways to get started, and there's so many different skill sets that are needed in the world of software. So I doubted myself a lot throughout my career and whether or not I was good enough or smart enough. And I think ultimately one of my mentors said, like, the most important thing is that you get shit done. And that's not always easily measured in a job interview, The tech industry interviews are notoriously difficult. They focus on a lot of fundamental skills that you may have learned in an undergraduate class, algorithms. I'm still really, really weak on those. And it can be hard to get your foot in the door in tech, but if it's something you're passionate about, I would absolutely encourage folks to keep working at it and to talk to people in different types of jobs and see what might be a good fit. Because I think there's room room here. There's room here for you if you're interested in this space. Laura, thanks so much for uh, being on the show. It was a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much, Greg. It was great to be here. That's it for this episode of Working. I'm Greg Lavalley. Thanks to Jessamine Molly for producing, Rosemary Belson for engineering, and Justin D. Wright for the ad music. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And remember, you can always email us at workingatslate.com. Thanks for listening.